Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalms chapter 43, beginning with verse 8 and continuing through verse 11. Psalms 43, 8 through 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made the desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow with the, and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I want to begin this morning with a little informal survey. I want you to raise your hand if someone has ever mispronounced your name. Okay? Now you can put your hands down. Now let's, let's take it another way. Raise your hand if you've ever been called by the wrong name. All right. One more question. Raise your hand if you've ever been called by the wrong name and you did not correct the person that called you by the wrong name. Now, raise your hand if you've ever been called by the wrong name in front of your spouse and your spouse didn't correct the person. Just, just me? Years ago when Sarah and I were dating, uh, her grandmother passed away and I went with her and her family to the funeral. We had to spend the night in her grandparents' house because they lived uh, far enough away that it was too much of a drive. And the next morning, the day of the funeral, we wake up and the house is so crowded and so busy that it was suggested that Sarah take me uh, to her great aunt's house who lived nearby either across the street or the next street over, I can't remember. And so Sarah took me over to her great aunt's house so I could get ready there. And while I'm in the bathroom cleaning up and everything, Sarah's sitting out in the living room with her great aunt. When I get done, we get ready to leave. And her great aunt shakes my hand and calls me Todd. And I just turned and looked at Sarah because I didn't know if I heard her correctly. And I got one of those looks. You know those looks you get from your spouse that says, don't do it don't do it. And I got one of those looks, and we're just dating. We're just dating at this point, but I got the don't do it look. And so I, I ignored it. We, we get outside and come to find out the whole time Sarah was sitting in the living room with her great aunt, her great aunt was calling me Todd, and not once did Sarah think to correct her. And I, as I remembered the story, I thought this happened just a, a couple of months into our dating life. And so I was telling Sarah about it this morning, and she goes, no, honey, we had been dating for two years at that point. So we're two years into our relationship, and she doesn't correct her great aunt who is mispronouncing my name. And I, all I can think is, a year later, a year after that, we got married. And I can just imagine her great aunt sitting out in the auditorium as we're getting married, wondering where that wonderful sweet fellow named Todd went a year ago. <laughs> but what's funny about that is, looking back, I am horrible with names. 
I am one of the world's worst at remembering people's names, and some of you have experienced that. I have tried many different uh, methods and strategies for trying to improve my name-remembering skills. It just doesn't happen. I can meet you, you can tell me your name, and then we can have a conversation, and I'll remember where you're from, I'll remember what school you went to, I'll remember what occupation you have, but I can't remember your name. And so I'll introduce myself to people five, six, seven, twenty times because I'm trying to remember that name. And I understand, both from personal experience and from my my own flaw in this realm, that that is difficult. Because knowing someone's name communicates important things. Knowing someone's name communicates a level of intimacy that's above just being in the same room with them. And knowing someone's name communicates some degree of value you place on the relationship that doesn't exist when you don't know who they are. Names matter. And we understand that. That's why we've been spending this summer studying the names of God. Because we want to know God better. We want to know God more intimately because he knows us the most intimately. And we want to know our Father. So we've been examining these names, and today we come to what is quite possibly the most prominent name of God outside of his personal name, Yahweh. It's the name Yahweh Sabaoth. Now you see that and you might think that's Yahweh Sabbath. No, this is Yahweh Sabaoth. And it's different. This name is so prevalent in the Old Testament that you'll find it just just under 300 times. You'll find it primarily in the prophets. For example, it will appear in the book of Isaiah 62 times, the book of Jeremiah 79 times, the book of Zechariah 53 times, the book of Malachi 24 times, and in the book of Haggai, which is just two chapters long and has less than 40 verses, this name will appear 14 times. For some reason, this is the name that became dominant among the prophets, and yet it's a name that's easily overlooked. In fact, one of the books I've been using as research for this this particular sermon series doesn't even have a chapter on this name, because it's just not that well-known of a name. The name Yahweh Sabaoth means Yahweh of hosts, or as your English translations will most likely translate it, Lord of hosts. But what does that mean? In its most general sense, that term Sabaoth means a mass or a multitude of people or things. So, for example, in the Bible, this term is occasionally used in reference to the stars. Such is the case in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, where we're told the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. Of course, there are other times, there are some occasions that this term Sabbath is used in reference to the angels in Scripture as well, to the hosts of heaven. And so you have, for instance, Psalm chapter 103, verse 20 and 21. Where David said, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. In Psalm 103, hosts is a reference to the angels. But the term is most often used 
throughout the Bible to refer to a group of fighting men or to an army. Such is the case in 2 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 23, where it simply says, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. You see, this word Sabaoth, it refers to a mass or a multitude of people or things. And so sometimes it'll be stars, sometimes it'll be angels, sometimes it'll be armies. And while the military connotations, both in reference to the Israelite army and the heavenly army of angels, dominate the use of this term throughout the Bible, I don't think that the battlefield concept, the victory in battle concept, is the primary focus of this name of God. I agree with one author who said the important thing about this name for God is that whatever it is, whether it be armies, angels, or stars, it indicates that Yahweh reigns over all things, both on earth and in heaven. And that leads me to see this name not as one that communicates victory, but one that communicates hope. You know, the first appearance of this name is actually in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But I think it's based on events that actually happen in Joshua chapter 5. So if you'll turn to Joshua chapter 5 with me, I want you to notice something that happens there. It's in Joshua chapter 5, particularly verse 13 through 15, where we read these words. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. End of story. Now nowhere in this story does it use that word Sabaoth. The reference to army and armies is not a use of that term. Think about the context, though. The Israelites had just crossed the Jordan River in the previous chapter, and now they're preparing to launch their divinely ordered conquest of the land of Canaan. They're specifically ready to attack the city of Jericho. And before they start that, Joshua encounters this entity. This entity with his sword drawn in his hand who claimed to be the commander of the army of the Lord. I mean, this was an unsolicited, unexpected, and unnerving encounter for Joshua. The only other time in Scripture prior to this that someone had encountered a, a, an, a, an entity like this with sword drawn was when Balaam and his donkey encountered the angel of the Lord who was standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, according to Numbers chapter 22. And so, in that instance, that angel was there to kill Balaam. So I can imagine Joshua's a little bit uneasy about what he's experiencing here. And Joshua wants to know if this guy is on his side or not. So he asked, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And this entity, which we assume to be an angel because Balaam's encounter was with an angel, simply said, no. No, I'm not for you. No, I'm not for your adversaries. 
Then he revealed who he was and concluded by saying, I have come. I'm here. Joshua falls on his face, and this guy instructs him to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground, and that's the end of the story. That's the entirety of this encounter, leaving us to wonder why, why the commander of the army of the Lord appeared to Joshua. Was it to confirm Joshua's position as the successor to Moses by having him remove his sandals just like Moses did at the burning bush? Was he there to inform Joshua of God's unique strategy for defeating Jericho that we don't read about until the next chapter? Or was it something else? Personally, I think it has everything to do with hope. See, even though the commander of the army of the Lord didn't say he was on Joshua's side, I believe he was present to remind Joshua that no matter what happened next, God was in control. That God, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, was always going to be in control. And I think the same thing happened in 2 Kings chapter 6. In verse 15 through 17, when Elisha and his servant awoke to the Syrian army surrounding their town. And when Elisha's servant saw that army encamped against them, he asked, what shall we do? And Elijah's response, Elisha's response in verse 16 was this. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Yahweh Sabaoth showed up with his hosts and protected Elisha. The ability to see the army of Yahweh protecting them was intended to give Elisha's servant hope because it meant that God was in control. You know what? I think the same thing, this same idea about Yahweh's Sabaoth being a name that propels hope is alluded to in Matthew 26. In the Garden of Gethsemane, after Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus instructed him to put his sword away. And then in verse 53 of Matthew 26, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus didn't call on those angels, but he could have. And I think that was a, a, a reference to the angelic army of Yahweh intended to instill hope in Peter because it meant that God, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, was ultimately in control, even though it didn't seem like it. See, I think the name Yahweh Sabaoth is intended to communicate hope in life's most hopeless moments. And I think that's why so many people call on the, this name in the Bible, why it's so prevalent in the prophets in an era when, when these individuals were going out and communicating messages of hope to a people who were oppressed or a people who were separated from their land or a people who were in captivity. So I want to share with you with the rest of our time a couple of occasions when Yahweh Sabaoth was approached by people. And what that means for us. Now, 
the points I'm about to give are not original to me. I kind of stole them from another preacher. But that doesn't mean they're not good. That means I like them. The first thing I want you to know when it comes to calling on, the, on Yahweh Sabaoth is that you can call on Yahweh Sabaoth when you are embracing impossible dreams. Now, sounds like I'm going into a health and wealth kind of gospel here, but that's not the point. I want you to understand that we all have deep desires, and we all have dreams, and we all have things we want to achieve in life, particularly not just for ourselves, but in the realm of God's kingdom. And I want to show you the very first time in the Bible that this name, Yahweh Sabaoth, shows up. It's in the context of the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. You may be familiar with the story, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah was barren. In a, she's barren in a culture that doesn't look well on barrenness. And every year she and her husband would go to the tabernacle and Hannah would pray to the Lord for him to bless her with child. Look at what unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. We're told that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh Sabaoth, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That prayer is the first time in the Bible that an individual uses the name Yahweh Sabaoth. And isn't it an interesting occasion? Here's this woman who would not give up on her dream to become a mother. Here's a woman who believed nothing was impossible for God. Even her barren womb was, womb was something that Yahweh Sabaoth could overcome. Here's a woman whose ultimate desire in life was not contrary to the kingdom interests of God. And so she's laying her request at his feet in hope because she knows he's capable of doing something about it. And because of that, God ultimately fulfilled her request. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to say that God's going to fulfill every request and every dream you have. That's not my objective today. My objective is to remind us that nothing falls outside the realm of Yahweh Sabaoth's potential. I think many of us need to pray like Hannah did. I think many of us have stopped praying like Hannah did. I think too many of us have settled for barrenness in some aspect of our life. Maybe some of us have settled on barrenness in our marriage. We've given up on ever having a good marriage. We've settled for mediocrity or we've settled for distance. We don't ask the Lord of hosts to intervene anymore. And we need to return to Yahweh Sabaoth. Some of us had settled on barrenness in our family. Maybe we've given up on a family member's salvation because they either have never come to faith or they have wandered from the faith. And we're no longer pursuing them. But more importantly, we're no longer pleading for them to Yahweh Sabaoth. We need to start communicating with him again about them. 
Maybe some of us have even settled on barrenness in the church. We've given up on the church because we've seen flawed people make mistakes either as leaders or as fellow members. While the church is perfect, its inhabitants certainly aren't. And instead of soliciting God's help to resolve a conflict or God's help in offering forgiveness or God's help in moving forward, we've given up on the church. It's time we take those matters to Yahweh Sabo. And on and on the list could go on the ways in which our lives have experienced barrenness and we failed to go to Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, to intervene. And I don't believe God wants barrenness among his people. I don't believe God wants you to give up on kingdom-minded dreams and desires. I think that's why he invites us in everything to let our requests be made known to him, as Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no subject matter, no issue, no uh, kingdom-oriented desire that falls outside of God's willingness to hear? I'm reminded of Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17 through 19, where Jeremiah has received instructions to sell a plot of land to a relative, even though his job has been to prophesy... No, he's to buy a piece of land from a relative, even though his job has been to prophesy that they're about to get kicked out of the land. And this was the prayer Jeremiah prayed after that situation. He said, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to the children after them. O oh, great and mighty God whose name is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah's words indicate that Yahweh Sabaoth is not just in the business of repaying people's guilt. He's also in the business of rewarding their faithfulness. And as we see in the life of Hannah, I don't think that's just limited to the afterlife. I think that relates to this life as well. So we should call on Yahweh Sabaoth when we are embracing impossible dreams. But we should also call on Yahweh Sabaoth when we're facing impossible odds. Even though the name Yahweh Sabaoth is one of the lesser talked about names of God, it factors into one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. I'm talking about the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. One of the things that stands out about David's confrontation with that giant is that he was never, he was never shaken, never impressed by Goliath's size. In fact, something stood out to me about this text that I've never really paid attention to before. It's the fact that nowhere in this chapter does the text say that David saw Goliath, that David laid eyes on Goliath prior to his face-to-face standoff in the, on the battlefield. See, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23 and 24, we're told in verse 24 that when all the men of Israel saw Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. They saw him, and it brought about fear, and they fled. 
But in the previous verse, we're told that all David did was hear Goliath. He heard the taunts. He heard the mockery. He heard Goliath, but the text never says he saw him. And when David heard him, his response was, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words, what David was saying is, Why are we letting him talk about Yahweh's Sabaoth that way? And so David decided to do something about it. The way the text sets the story up is that David took on Goliath without seeing this nine-foot, nine-inch tall giant decked out in his array of superior armor and weaponry ahead of time. But none of that mattered to David because David knew Yahweh Sabaoth. Look at what he said to Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. As he entered the battlefield, David said this, You come to me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David didn't need weaponry. David didn't need armor. David didn't need experience because all David needed was Yahweh Sabaoth. And so David here, the odds are stacked against him. Goliath is bigger. Goliath is stronger. Goliath is more experienced. Goliath is better equipped. Goliath was in his elements. But none of that mattered because David was backed by the Lord of hosts. And when God's on your side, you're always in the majority. But David wasn't the only biblical hero to be infused with hope by Yahweh's Sabaoth in the midst of impossible odds. There's also Elijah, who burst on the scenes in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, and boldly announced that there shall be neither rain nor dew these years except by my word. The next three years were famine-filled, and as a result, Elijah was hunted by King Ahab, who, according to verse 10 of 1 Kings chapter 18, sent search parties into every known kingdom to try to find Elijah but did so unsuccessfully. But he's not just being hunted by Elijah, he's also being hunted by Jezebel. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 18, and I believe it's verse 4, that Jezebel killed every prophet of Yahweh she could get her hands on. So Elijah knows there's a death threat against his life. But then comes the word in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, where God tells Elijah to go show yourself to Ahab. That's a death march. That was a seemingly impossible assignment given the circumstances. He was being ordered by God to expose himself to the very people that wanted to take his life. You know, this was different than David's experience. David wasn't commanded by God to take on Goliath. David volunteered. Elijah's being ordered. But like David, Elijah faced his giant without hesitation. And he did so because he knew that Yahweh Sabaoth was with him. Look at what he told Ahab's servant when he arranged for that meeting with the king in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 15. 
as Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to King Ahab today. Elijah wasn't afraid, just like David wasn't afraid. Because Elijah knew that Yahweh Sabaoth was on his side. The odds were stacked against Elijah, just like they were with David. Ahab was powerful, Jezebel was vindictive, and Elijah was outnumbered. But none of that mattered, because Elijah was backed by the Lord of hosts. And when the Lord of hosts is on your side, you're always in the majority. You're always more powerful. You're always on the winning team. And that should give you hope that no matter what giant you must face or what challenge you must take on, you can do all things through Yahweh's Sabaoth who gives you strength. Yeah, I know it doesn't say Yahweh's Sabaoth in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. But isn't it true? You can do all things when the Lord of hosts is behind you. You know what that means? That means you can overcome that addiction you've been plagued with because Yahweh Sabaoth is on your side. That means you can fix your marriage because Yahweh Sabaoth is on your side. That means you can abstain from sexual immorality because Yahweh Sabaoth is on your side. That means you can stand up for biblical morality even in the midst of cancel culture because Yahweh Sabaoth is on your side. That means you can talk to your neighbor or your coworker or your relative or your friend about Jesus Christ because Yahweh Sabaoth is on your side. There is no assignment, no task, no responsibility, no challenge you can't face because Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, has got your back. And some of us need to remember that. Because all too often, we cower instead of confront. And we need to remember that you can do all things through Yahweh's Sabaoth, who gives you strength. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I just took a verse that was written about Christ in the New Testament and inserted a name of God from the Old Testament, and that shouldn't be allowed. I also make up words, so there we go. But I feel justified in inserting Yahweh's Sabaoth in this text because the prophets would use the name Yahweh's Sabaoth in reference to Christ. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That reference to a Redeemer, who is that ultimately a reference to? but the one who redeemed us by the shedding of his blood. And who is the first and the last? Jesus would use that title three different times in the book of Revelation in reference to himself. There's also Isaiah chapter 54, and verse 5, where Isaiah said, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Your husband. Who is it that's identified as the bridegroom throughout the New Testament? Is it not Christ in the parable of the ten virgins, as well as the allusion to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation? And who is the Holy One? In Peter's Pentecost sermon of Acts 2 and Paul's synagogue sermon of Acts 13, 
Is it not Christ? You see, even back in the Old Testament, when the Yahweh Sabaoth name was announced, it was used in reference to the one who gives us ultimate hope. That's why this matters. Because Yahweh Sabaoth is a name that communicates hope, and our hope is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, the one who died and the one who rose. In fact, Paul will argue in Ephesians chapter 2 that there is no hope apart from Christ. You can do all things through Yahweh Sabaoth, who strengthens you. I want to close with this story that I know I've told before. Back in 1981, a businessman named Eugene Lang returned to the public school, the elementary school that he attended in East Harlem 50 years earlier. He was there to address the graduating sixth graders, and he intended to tell them to work hard and you'll succeed, to do one of those kind of lessons for them as he spoke that day. But on the way to the podium, the principal told Lang that three-quarters of the school students would probably never finish high school. And that prompted Eugene Lang to make an impromptu change to his speech. He promised college tuition to every sixth grader at that school who stayed in high school and graduated. He set up an organization and started referring to that class as his dreamers. There were 61 original dreamers that worked with his organization, and of those 61, 54 remained in contact, and more than 90% of those earned their high school diplomas or GEDs, and 60% went on to college. That's a dramatic increase from the stats that existed before. Before he promised college tuition to those students, 60% wouldn't graduate high school. No, 75% wouldn't graduate high school. And after he made that promise, 90% did, and 60% went on to college. What made the difference? The difference was that those students had confidence about their future because someone had guaranteed it. <coughs> Yahweh Sabaoth has guaranteed your future because he died for your sins and he rose from the grave. Yahweh Sabaoth has your back like no one or no thing ever can. The Lord of hosts, the God who is over all, the God of hope. And maybe hope is exactly what you need today. Maybe you're finding yourself in some hopeless situations and you need to return to Yahweh Sabaoth. Maybe you've stopped communicating with him and you need to start calling on him in prayer once again. Maybe. Maybe you've never come to know Yahweh Sabaoth. Maybe that salvation that's available in his son hasn't come to you yet, and you need to put on Christ in baptism so that you can have the confidence of eternity. Whatever your need is this morning, we offer the invitation, and we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
for being with us this morning and uh, certainly if you're visiting with us please come back any chance you can we will have an evening service tonight at uh, 6 p.m. so please uh, be be here if you can uh, we'll close with uh, 388 let every heart rejoice and sing and be dismissed in prayer <clears throat> let every heart rejoice and sing let
Let us pray. Our Father, what a joy it is to have assembled together with our family this day, to be able to hear your word proclaimed and to have our souls fed spiritually by that word that gives us life. We thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to come before you and to give praise to you and to sing to you the songs that help ourselves to remember who you are and what you do for us. And Father, we thank you that you are always with us, and that in every time and need of life that we have, that you are with us. And help us to, Father, that we might remember every day as we begin the day and end the day that you are with us and that you love us and that you are there to help us in this walk of life that we go through. And we pray, Father, that we every day will place our hand in your hand and walk with you and to find the joys and the values and the blessings that come from you. And for all these things, Father, we are so grateful that you have brought them into our life. Be with us today as we continue this day and help us to remember who you are and the love you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.